You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. The four gospel accounts that we find in the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give four different perspectives, all very similar, of course, about what happened on Good Friday when Jesus hung on the cross. And combined of the four gospels, there are seven sayings, as it were, that Jesus had from the cross when he hung there, seven things that Jesus said. And indeed, they speak to a wide spectrum of human need. First of all, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing, which, of course, speaks to the need for forgiveness, the need for not only forgiveness with God, but forgiveness with each other, to be delivered from the guilt or the shame of having wronged. To the thief that was beside him, Jesus said, Truly today I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Which speaks to us of the need, again, spiritually for eternal life, something beyond this world, from the punishment of sin into the assurance that when I leave this body behind, my soul will live forever. To his mother, Jesus said while he was on the cross, Woman, Behold your son, and he pointed to John the Apostle. And pointing to John, he said, Behold your mother. And so even from the cross, he was thinking of the need of how God sets the lonely in families and made sure that his mother was being taken care of. Meaningful relationship. And to his father, God, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which, of course, speaks of a broken relationship with the Father because of sin that was laid on Jesus. But on a human level, it speaks of this deep, deep psychological, emotional need for us humans to have acceptance and love and all that stuff. And then Jesus said, I am thirsty. And, of course, that's just simply speaking of physical need. We can... We can live a few days without, uh, we can live a few months without food. We can only live a few days without water. I thirst, I'm thirsty, Jesus said. And then Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, which points ultimately to a faith and an assurance that we have that on the brink of death, even those that have been rugged agnostics and atheists, there's the possibility that even on the brink of death, they would awaken to the realization that they could have someone waiting on the other side, that they could entrust their souls to, someone to commit their spirit to as they enter the afterlife. There's a lot of human need that's expressed here in these seven words, but what about the last word from the cross? The last word from the cross is it is finished. And in that regard, the last words of Jesus from the cross do not seem to identify any human need, but rather in, they remind us that in his death we find the consummation and the fulfillment of all human need in Jesus' death. It is finished. The scriptures teach that God will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What an incredible verse in Philippians 4.19. It's a true statement, providing 
that we don't think that Jesus promises in that verse that all of our wants and all of our wishes and all of our yearnings and all of our desires are going to be fulfilled in him. Even all of our perceived needs are not going to be. The danger of what I have just done with the seven words from the cross is that when we look at the cross of Jesus through the lens of our own needs, we tend to get off-center and we distort the teaching from the Scriptures. When we make ourselves the central characters of the history of redemption, then we turn Christ into best supporting actor in our drama, then really what we're doing is we're, we're, we're worshiping a demigod and we're putting ourselves up as gods. Instead of Jesus being the star, we become the star. If your life is a movie, you're the one that is given all portfolio and Jesus only appears to make you look better and meet your need and we turn God into a divine vending machine that really exists to be my bellhop that is at my beck and call to meet my needs and make me look better. That's what happens when Jesus is not the center of redemptive history. When we read words like this and consider that our needs are what this is about, then we really can twist the scriptures. Now, don't misunderstand me in this. I'm not at all suggesting that God is not interested in your need. God is deeply interested in your need. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So he's interested in our needs. But you see, instead of welcoming his son, the Bible says, instead of welcoming this means of meeting our needs, we instead have resisted the son of God and that ever since the fall into sin, we have been trying to get back to the garden, so to speak. But we've not been trying to get back to the garden in the way that God has provided through his son. We have been trying get to get back to the garden where we had no needs at all. We've been trying to get back to the garden in our own means, in our own ways, by our own devices. You see, in the garden, there was no need. God met every need that Adam and Eve had. There was no need. Can you imagine the garden? No need. No sin, no selfishness, no hunger, no insecurity, no fear. And we've been trying to get back to the garden ever since. But we've been trying in our own devices to get back there. You see, sin came and then there, there, there was this ripping out of our, our garden, this perf perfect equilibrium of God and us in harmony. And we were taken out of it and left estranged from God, estranged from one another, even estranged from ourselves and all of creation. And yet there remains within every human, every man and woman and child, there remains within us this, this thing that only God can fill. There's a need in every one of us, centrally, that only God can meet. The writer of Ecclesiastes says it this way. He says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Chapter 3, verse 11. 
God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. St. Augustine interpreted this to mean that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That's the way he interpreted that. Restlessness that you and I face points to actually the deepest hunger of all for God to fill the voids that are in our lives. Restlessness really points to that. Now, how we fill restlessness in our lives is another matter. Others have described this this, uh, God-shaped hole or vacuum in that way. It's like a a God-shaped thing that only God can fill. The German philosophers actually have a word for this thing. The German philosophers call this eternity-shaped heartache Zensucht. Zensucht is this indescribable longing or searching or craving or yearning that nothing on earth satisfies and that only God can meet. Zensucht. It is not a surprise to me that in recent surveys that 79% of Canadians believe in God or in a supernatural universal spirit. That's because from the very empty space of every human being, there is a centerpiece that only God has the key to. Only God can fill that need, that thing, that vacuum, that void. Only God can do it. And only God will do it in God's way. So the Bible teaches us that we were created in the image of God and that that image of of humanity was broken. And so sin has a result of breaking us from the image of God, marring and staining us, and therefore ever since that breaking of the image of God in us, we have been trying to fix ourselves. We have been trying to restore the image of God in us. We have been trying to, to patch up the broken parts of our very being When only God can fix it, when only God can do it, we have been trying to patch it up. And we are trying to fill the inner void, the inner vacuum. We're trying to deal with our own sensukt in an an endless cycle of temporary and superficial means, which is where, of course, many many of our addictions come from. We are constantly trying to fill that which is lacking, which only God can fill, and we'll do it by trying to drug it or deny it or mask it or medicate it or feed it or cover it up with work or entertainment or religious activity or good deeds. You name it, we've tried it. Humanity is an idol-making factory machine. Someone has said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We will try any means to get back to the garden. We will try any means of patching up the image of God that's been broken. We will try anything it takes to try and fix ourselves, to feel better about ourselves, but we will resist the way that God has given us through, through confession of Jesus Christ, God's Son, as the only means by which we will be saved, by which we will be restored, by which we will be fixed, by which we'll get back to the garden. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. 
You see, you can defy God and you can stay as the star of your movie and you can be the centerpiece and you can try to force God and Jesus into a supporting role just to meet your needs and make you look better, but in the end, you will be the one that perishes. So I want to come back to the statement again. It is finished. What does the last word of Jesus on the cross really mean? It is finished. What is finished? What did Jesus finish on the cross? Was this merely a statement of a dying man who was about to breathe his last, just like the Romans had seen many dying men on crosses that breathed their last, and the last words were always treasured? Or was it more? Oh, friends, it was so much more. First and foremost, it is finished, was a declaration, a statement that reflected the absolute completion of the life mission of Jesus Christ on earth. He said, I have come to do my Father's will and to finish His work. And later on on the cross when He said it is finished, Jesus was primarily saying, God, I have drank the cup that You have given me to drink. I have finished the work You have given me to do. I have fulfilled Your will for my life and now I can go in peace. And he breathed his last. That was first and foremost what it is finished was all about. Jesus fulfilling the purpose of God the Father. Knowing that he could entrust his own spirit into the hands of the Father. Knowing that he will be raised bodily in just three days. In a secondary way, but in addition, it is finished is also the most all-encompassing declaration about human need that could ever be given. For in the death of Jesus, we see absorbed into everything, into His body, we see absorbed everything we need. Jesus took every need that could be named upon Himself, and He died in His body on the tree to meet that need. Every human need. But needs are a slippery word that have to be defined. You see, it needs to be broken down into at least two kinds of needs that we humans carry. First, there is the need that we have because we're helpless. We're victims. The Bible says that we are like sheep that are going astray, like sheep without a shepherd. It says many times in the Gospels that Jesus looked upon the multitudes and he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so the need here for us who are victims on this earth and sheep without a shepherd and lost souls and so on, the need is for a search and rescue. The need is for deliverance. That's one kind of need that Jesus died for. The other kind of need, secondly, is that there is a need that we have that is not because we are helpless victims, but rather because we are morally responsible creatures to a holy God creator that's, that has a claim on our lives. 
And instead of submitting to him who created us for his glory and for his reasons, we have acted independently of him. We have shaken our little fists in his head, in his face. We have rebelled. We have known what is right and we have walked in defiance. And so the deepest human need that we carry around is for a need of reconciliation with this God that we have deeply offended. We need forgiveness. We need someone to take the rap for us because we have sinned against a holy God. John Knox puts it this way. He puts those two needs together and he says this. He said that as helpless sinners, we need deliverance. And as responsible sinners, we need forgiveness. All of human need falls into one of those two categories. God sees it all. God sees that which we have become because we have been sinned against. You can name many ways. What have you become because you've been sinned against? How many children start out this world in this world with not a fair chance because they have been sinned against even before they drew their first breath? They were victims. They were sinned against. It is impossible to go through this world without being sinned against and being victimized and being unjustly treated. Now what you do with that is a really critical piece because it takes you into the next part. You see, God knew all that we would become because we've been sinned against, and He also knew all that we would become because we sin, volitionally. That is why the Lord taught us to pray. You remember what He said? He said, forgive us our trespasses. That's the volitional sin. Just as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the stuff that's that we're victims of. The, the prayer reflects the two sides of human need. And Jesus took it on the cross when he did so. Jesus took both upon himself. He took our need to be rescued and delivered and our need to be redeemed and forgiven. And he said, it is finished. I am absorbing in my body right now, Heavenly Father, all the wrath that you righteously pour out on sinners and sinful community and all that sin produces in the sin against us and in the sin against others. Jesus absorbed it in his body on the tree. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 53. And I want you to listen for the two kinds of need that is expressed. The kind of need that we need deliverance from and be rescued from, and the kind of need that we need forgiveness and reconciliation about. It says, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows 
Yeah, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. For by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Do we really know what we need do we really know what we need? And do we really know when we need it? Are we not like little children who, who cry out because something was taken away from them? A knife that was taken away from a three-year-old? Are we not like that before the Father? We think we need something and we cry out if God does not provide it. And yet in what God withholds, in when God withholds it, in when God gives it, in what God gives, faith says, God, I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to trust you with all my needs. I'll trust you for that relationship, who and when you decide. I'll trust you for that job, where and when it comes. I'll trust you for those finances, if and when they come. I'll trust you for those purchases. I'll trust you for that health of that loved one. I'll trust you for my life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do we really know what we need and when we need it? You see, right now, faith for you, faith means that you will trust God to give you what you need and when you need it. So as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table this morning, what I would like you to do as you meditate on this Good Friday, I want you to see that in Jesus on the cross, he absorbed all the human need that was possible to be absorbed. And that in Christ, you do have all of your needs met. And you can trust God. He who, did not give, who, he who did not spare his only son, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, all that you need, he will provide. That's your faith test this morning. Will you trust God?